This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and we start this time with a report from 401 BC by Xenophon. After the defeat of the Persian Cyrus, whom he had been assisting, Xenophon led his army of Greek mercenaries up the Tigris Valley and through the wilds of Kurdistan to the Black Sea in an epic retreat. The third day's march was a hard one, with a north wind blowing into their faces, cutting into absolutely everything like a knife and freezing people stiff. One of the soothsayers then proposed making a sacrifice to the wind and his suggestion was carried out. It was agreed by all that there was then a distinct falling off in the violence of the wind. The snow was six feet deep and many of the animals and the slaves perished in it as did about 30 of the soldiers. They kept their fires going all night as there was plenty of wood in the place where they camped, though those who came up late got no wood. The ones who had arrived before and had lit the fires would not let the latecomers approach their fire unless they gave them a share of their corn or any other foodstuff they had. So each shared with the other party what he had. When the fires were made, great pits were formed reaching down to the ground as the snow melted. This gave one a chance of measuring the depth of the snow. Soldiers who had lost the use of their eyes through snow blindness or whose toes had dropped off from frostbite were left behind. It was a relief to the eyes against snow blindness if one held something black in front of the eyes while marching, and it was a help to the feet if one kept on the move and never stopped still and took off one's shoes at night. If one slept with one's shoes on, the straps sank into the flesh and the soles of the shoes froze to the feet. This was more likely to happen since, when their old shoes were worn out, they had made themselves shoes of undressed leather from the skins of oxen that had just been flayed. It seemed safe for the troops to take up their quarters in the villages. Chirosophus stayed where he was, and the other officers drew lots for the villages which were in sight, and each went with his men to get the one he got. On this occasion, Polycrates, an Athenian captain, asked leave to go on independently, and, taking with him the men who were quickest on their feet, ran to the village which had been allotted to Xenophon and surprised all the villagers with their headman inside the walls, together with seventeen colts which were kept there for the tribute to the king, and the headman's daughter, who had been married only nine days ago. Her husband had gone out to hunt hares and was not captured in the village. The houses were built underground. The entrances were like wells, but they broadened out lower down. There were tunnels dug in the ground for the animals, while the men went down by ladder. Inside the houses there were goats, sheep, cows and poultry with their young. All these animals were fed on food that was kept inside the houses. There was also wheat, barley, beans and barley wine in great bowls. The actual grains of barley floated on top of the bowls, level with the brim, and in the bowls there were reeds of various sizes and without joints in them. When one was thirsty, one was meant to take a reed and suck the wine into one's mouth. It was a very strong wine, unless one mixed it with water, and when one got used to it, it was a very pleasant drink. Xenophon invited the chief of the village to have supper with him and told him to be of good heart as he was not going to be deprived of his children and that if he showed himself capable of doing the army a good turn until they reached another tribe they would restock his house with provisions when they went away. He promised to cooperate and to show his good intentions told them of where some wine was buried. 
So for that night all the soldiers were quartered in the villages and slept there with all sorts of food around them, setting a guard over the headman of the village and keeping a watchful eye on his children too. On the next day Xenophon visited Chirosophus and took the headman with him. Whenever he went past a village he turned into it to see those who were quartered there. Everywhere he found them feasting and merrymaking, and they would invariably refuse to let him go before they had given him something for breakfast. In every single case they would have on the same table lamb, kid, pork, veal, chicken, and a number of loaves, both wheat and barley. When anyone wanted, as a gesture of friendship, to drink to a friend's health, he would drag him to a huge bowl over which he would have to lean, sucking up the drink like an ox. They invited the headman too to take what he liked, but he refused their invitations. Only if he caught sight of any of his relatives, he would take them along with him. When they came to Carosophus, they found his men also feasting, with reefs of hay round their heads and with Armenian boys in native dress waiting on them. They showed the boys what to do by signs as though they were deaf-mutes. After greeting each other, Chirosophus and Xenophon together interrogated the headman through the interpreter who spoke Persian and asked him what country this was. He replied that it was Armenia. Then they asked him for the, whom the horses were being kept, and he said that it were of tribute paid to the king. The next country, he said, was the land of the Chalibs, and he told them the way there. Xenophon then went away and took the headman back to his own people. He gave him back the horse, rather an old one, which he had taken, and told him to fatten it up and sacrifice it. This was because he had heard that it was sacred to the sun, and he was afraid that he might die, as the journey had done it no good. He took some of the colts himself, and gave one colt to each of the generals and captains. The horses in this part of the world were smaller than the Persian horses, but much more finely bred. The headman told the Greeks to tie small bags around the feet of the horses and baggage animals whenever they made them go through snow, as without these bags they sank in it up to their bellies. Then came a seven days march of a hundred and fifty miles through the country of the Chalibs. These were the most warlike of all tribes on their way, and they fought with the Greeks at close quarters. They had body armour of linen reaching down to the groin, and instead of skirts to their armour they wore thick, twisted cords. They also wore greaves and helmets, and carried on their belts a knife of about the size of the Spartan dagger. With these knives they cut the throats of those whom they managed to overpower, and then would cut off their heads and carry them as they marched, singing and dancing whenever their enemies were likely to see them. They also carried a spear with one point about twenty feet long. They used to stay inside their settlements and then when the Greeks had gone past they would follow behind and were always ready for a fight. They had their houses in fortified positions and had brought all their provisions inside the fortifications. Consequently, the Greeks could take nothing from them but lived on the supplies which they had seized from the Talchai. The Greeks arrived next at the river Harpasus which was 400 feet across. Then they marched through the territory of the Scythini, a four days march of 60 miles over level ground until they came to some villages where they stayed for three days and renewed their stocks of provisions. Then a four days march of 60 miles brought them to a large, prosperous and inhabited city which was called Gymnius. The governor of the country sent the Greeks a guide from this city with the idea that he should lead them through country which was at war with his own people. When the guide arrived, he said that in five days he would lead them to a place from which they could see the sea, and he said he was ready to be put to death if he failed to do so. 
So he led the way, and when they had crossed the border into his enemy's country, he urged them to burn and lay waste the land, thus making it clear that it was for this purpose that he had come to them, and not because of any good will to the Greeks. They came to the mountain on the fifth day, the name of the mountain being Thekes. When the men in front reached the summit and caught sight of the sea, there was great shouting. Xenophon and the rearguard heard it and thought that there were some more enemies attacking in the front since there were natives of the country they had ravaged following them up behind. And the rearguard had killed some of them and made prisoners of others in an ambush and captured about 20 raw oxhide shield with the hair on. However, when the shouting got louder and drew nearer, and those who were constantly going forward starting running towards the men in front who kept on shouting, and the more there were of them, the more shouting there was, it looked then as though this was something of considerable importance. So Xenophon mounted his horse, and taking Lycus and the cavalry with him, rode forward to give support, and quite soon they heard the soldiers shouting out, The sea! The sea! and passing the word down the column. Then certainly they all began to run, the rear guard and all, and drove on the baggage animals and the horses at full speed, and when they had all got to the top, the soldiers, with tears in their eyes, embraced each other and their generals and captains. In a moment, at somebody or other's suggestion, they collected stones and made a great pile of them. On top they put a lot of raw oxhides and staves and shields which they had captured. The guide himself cut the shields into pieces and urged the others to do so too. Afterwards, the Greeks sent the guide back and gave him as presents from the common store a horse and a silver cup and a Persian robe and ten darics. What he particularly wanted was the rings which the soldiers had got, and he got a number of these from them. He pointed out to them a village where they could camp and showed them the robe by which they had to go to the country of the Macronis. It was then evening, and he went away, travelling by night. <laughs> Now for a short report from the Daily Telegraph of February the 13th, 1883. It's from our own correspondent about the Salvation Army being in difficulties in various locations. Kingsling. Yesterday afternoon and evening, the Salvation Army here had a very rough time. In the afternoon, during their customary procession with band, they were assailed by a gang of about 300 roughs, who with sticks beat the army in the most unmerciful manner. Hereford. At half past one this afternoon, the local captain and three other members of the Salvation Army were conveyed to the county jail here in a cab to serve 14 and 21 days imprisonment, respectively, in default of paying a fine of £1 each and costs for creating a disturbance in the street. The defendants were allowed time to wire to General Booth, but he telegraphed in reply, Go to prison. I will release you. Newbury. The local captain of the Salvation Army here conducted a service this evening in the marketplace where the roughs mustered in force and disturbed the proceedings by hooting and singing. On a move being made towards the barracks, the skeleton army followed causing much uproar and notwithstanding the presence of the police, a scene of great noise and disorder ensued. Well, being February, let's have a report from 1728 by a French tourist in London on pantomimes and gladiators. This is written by César de Saussure. The theatre at Lincoln's Inn Field is famous for its pantomimes which follow the comedy. These entertainments are composed of two parts, serious and comical. The first is taken from a mythological fable. Gods, goddesses and heroes sing their parts, the decorations are very fine and the machinery extraordinarily so. The second part, in which the actors are Harlequin, 
Com- Columbine, Scaramouche and Piero is acted and not spoken. But the gestures and the machinery allow you to follow the intrigue easily and it is generally very comical. Mr Rich, the director of this theatre, spends a great deal of money on plays of this sort. Two well-known ones are The Rape of Europa and Orpheus in the Lower Regions. In the former play, a part of the theatre represents hell, in which are seated gods and goddesses. It rises gradually into the clouds. At the same instance, out of the earth rises another stage. The scene represents a farmhouse, in front of which is a dunghill with an egg the size of an ostrich's on it. The egg owing to the heat of the sun, grows gradually larger and larger. When it is of a very large size, it cracks open and a little harlequin comes out of it. He is of the size of a child of three or four years old and little by little attains a natural height. It is said Mr Rich spent more than £4,000 sterling on Orpheus. The serpent that kills Eurydice is of enormous size and is covered all over with gold and green scales and with red swats. His eyes shine like fire and he wriggles about the theatre with head upraised, making an awful but very natural hissing noise. The first night this pantomime was given, the king was there and I had the good fortune to be present. One of the two grenadiers on the guard, who are posted at either side of the stage with their backs turned to the actors, noticed the serpent only when he was at their feet, and this reptile was so natural that the man dropped his musket and drawing his sword made as though he would cut the monster in two. I do not know whether the soldier was really alarmed or whether he was acting, but if so, it was admirably done, and the spectators laughed again and again. This piece is full of wonderful springs and clockwork machinery. When Orpheus learns that his beloved is dead, he retires into the depth of the stage and plays on his lyre. Presently, out of the rocks appear little bushes. They gradually grow up into trees, so that the stage resembles a forest. On these trees flowers blossom, then fall off, and are placed by different fruits, which you see grow and ripen. Wild beasts, lions, bears, tigers creep out of the forest, attracted by Orpheus and his lyre. It is altogether the most surprising and charming spectacle you can imagine. Mr Rich plays the part of Harlequin with great agility and address, and he is said to be the best actor of this part in Europe. In pantomimes, most good dancers are Frenchmen, and women from Paris. Ladies attend these plays in great numbers and are always beautifully dressed. I was sufficiently curious to wish to see the gladiators and I will describe their manner of fighting. The gladiators' stage is round. The spectators sit in galleries and the spectacle generally commences by a fight with wicker staves by a few rogues. They do not spare each other but are very skillful in giving great whacks on the head. When blood oozes from one of the combatants, a few coins are thrown to the victor. These games serve to pass the time, till the spectators have arrived. The day I went to see the gladiators fight, I witnessed an extraordinary combat, two women being the champions. As soon as they appeared on the stage, they made the spectators a profound reverence, then they saluted each other and engaged in a lively and amusing conversation. They boasted that they had a great amount of courage, strength and intrepidity. One of them regretted she was not born a man, else she would have made her fortune by her powers. The other declared she beat her husband every morning to keep her hand in. Both these women were very scantily clothed, and wore little bodices and a short petticoat of white linen. One of these Amazons was a stout Irish woman, strong and lithe to look at, the other a small English woman, full of fire and very agile. 
The first was decked with blue ribbons on the head, waist and right arm. The second wore red ribbons. Their weapons were a sort of two-handed sword, three or three and a half feet in length. The guard was covered and the blade was about three inches wide and not sharp. Only about a foot of it was, but then that part cut like a razor. The spectators made numerous bets and some peers who were there some very large wages. On either side of the two Amazons a man stood by holding a long staff ready to separate them should blood flow. After a time the combat became very animated and was conducted with force and vigour with the broad side of the weapons. For points there were none. The Irish woman present, presently received a great cut across her forehead and that put a stop to the first part of the combat. The Englishwoman's backers threw her shillings and half-crowns and applauded her. During this time, the wounded woman's forehead was sewn up, this being done on the stage, a plaster was applied to it, and she drank a good big glass of spirits to revive her courage. And the fight began again, each combatant holding a dagger in her left hand to ward off the blows. The Irish woman was wounded a second time, and her adversary again received coins and plaudits from her admirers. The wound was sewn up and for the third time the battle recommenced, the women holding wicked shields as defensive weapons. This third combat was fought for some time without result, but the poor Irish woman was destined to be the loser, for she received a long and deep wound all across her neck and throat. The surgeon sewed it up, but she was too badly hurt to fight any more, and it was time, for the combatants were dripping with perspiration and the Irish woman also with blood. A few coins were thrown to her to console her, but the victor made a good day's work out of the combat. Fortunately, it's very rare one hears of women gladiators. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias. www.soundimage.org. <laughs>